right. Yep. Okay, so it's official. You're exploratory candidate. Exactly. And uh, do you know what tune this is? Uh, it sounds really familiar. I've heard do, it. do 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 do. Saturday night, oh, sun God, goes down. We sing it. I know. Eliyahu and All right. Yeah. Abdallah. <laughs> yeah, and that's the Afro-Semitic experience. That's a group that, uh, it's a great, great New Haven group. But you're a West Hartford guy. You're yes, a Hartford I am. Area guy. Hartford, uh, born, raised first part of my life in the North End of Hartford, uh, then into West Hartford. But I've also lived in uh, Boston, went to Brandeis, uh, lived, worked out in Washington for Congresswoman Barbara Kennelly, both as an intern and then in between undergrad and law school, went to law school at NYU, practiced law for my first four years of, you know, over two decades of practice down in Fairfield County. So I've been around. I've seen uh, the world from different angles, different places, different Must have been fun going to NYU in the 80s. Oh, uh, it was great. I mean, the living in Greenwich Village, uh, just being able to go out to Washington Square Park and just people watch and you see Lou Reed walk by or <laughs> Woody Allen or just other people doing crazy things. Uh, it was amazing. And not to mention, you know, you always had the good hot knishes and the carts there too. Right, so, right. I mean, I love the music. Grand I used to go there a lot in high school. It yeah. is. Well, you know, you had Blue Note, you have, um, you had Folk City. I don't know if that was still around when you were there. Folk City was not, but the, there was, uh, one, well, the back, uh, the back fence mm -hmm. that a friend of mine, Paul Rizzo has, uh, an ownership and I met him oh, okay. during NYU, uh, during those days. And then there was the one. The Village Vanguard. Yep. And there was the one that, that had changed, it had moved, but it was where Bob Dylan got it. That started. was Folk City, Gerd's Folk City. Folk City, but there was another one that was still around. Cafe Wa? Cafe Wa was there. He, he played there. But this one had moved, and all I remember is back in the day, you know, when people smoke in bars, this bar was notorious, not just for being crowded on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, but you got out of there and your clothes reeked for days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the Moon's Falafel was down in the yes, village. It was. Days, and New Haven is where it's founded. I, they told me yesterday they've been branching out to Hoboken. They're going to be going to San Diego and L.A. Yeah, the Moon's was on uh, McDougal, right, right on there, and um, or on Third uh, McDougal and Third, kind of in that area. There was another really good Syrian uh, falafel place that was undercutting Moon's. I think it was oh, really? twenty-five for the falafel. Oh, okay, fifty. Okay, and I think Moon's ended up going up to also for a while it was in Middletown near. West it was. Side. It was in that near where Ion was. Yeah. Yeah, but they've they've been going great guns because yeah, exactly. they have all these people now, new generation of kids over there, get, and other people they're putting in all the rent. right. Yeah, it's great New Haven. So you've been to the one in New Haven? I have. Yes. So what's your favorite place in New Haven? Because now you got to convince us you're like the New Haven guy. What, what do you tell me about? You know, you like I used to go to court here a lot, uh, and my go-to place actually for lunch was Louis Lunch. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the place I took my son Spencer, who's here with us today. Oh, that's your uh, son. Was, yeah. Okay. Nice. Okay. And um, so uh, for some reason, that's like go now. You know, you, you want to get fancy schmancy people, places like Lu, uh, Union League, you know, there's other places that are, are, are really good, but you know, I, I like the burgers. All right. So you got the political bug early. Yes. You said that, uh, and you worked as an intern for Bar Canal. You said your parents were involved in politics or political organizing. Yeah. My parents were involved late 60s. Uh, my father was campaign manager for uh, a guy named Howard Klebanoff that challenged uh, John Bailey, you know, the powerful, uh, yeah. not just Connecticut state, state party, party chair, chair, but also he was the national chair. And was he related to Sandra Klebanoff, who was at the legal, the, the lawyer? Sandra Klebanoff was, yep, Sandy ran for Board of Ed. That's his wife, Howard's wife. So they won that seat. That was 68. I remember more the 1970 election, you know, being out. Uh, we would go and they'd have us uh, go to the Hebrew home. Uh, back then we called them old people's homes. Uh, and sing the Klebanoff song and be active on the streets. And they helped start the Blue Hill Civic Association, which was a neighborhood organization a bunch of young activists trying to keep the schools strong, protect people, the neighborhoods, the streets. 
So that's where, you know, that's where Six years from. old, you're going into an elderly home singing a song for someone running for, for state office. Yes. I think it might have even done when I was four years old. I just don't remember that year. Wow, yes, so you got I politics can, in the blood. You got it. And you're, you're, I think you might be the only, tell me if I'm wrong about this, in this crowded field of candidates for governor this year. You've made state laws as a state senator. You've run a city as a volunteer for me today, the unpaid mayor of West Hartford. Yes. And you've run a state agency. You were the consumer council. Yes, I was the commissioner of consumer protection. So this is the softball question of the interview. So how does those, having that variety of experience, how does that position you to be the governor of the state? Well, it's that public sector experience. I mean, I've seen government, not only when I've worked in Washington, but I've seen government from the municipal side, what it takes to run a city, to have a vibrant city, which is crucial for our future. Uh, I've seen um, how to make laws. Not only was I a state senator, but part of my private practice, uh, I was counsel to the House Democrats, so I've actually had experience in the House of Representatives too, both of those chambers, uh, and of course, running a state agency, uh, having to deal with the legislature, work with the legislature, uh, bring people together to get things done, and that's from the beginning. I've always been the, um, the uh, progressive problem solver. I mean, I've been, I get the job done. I've been able consistently, both in my private sector work and in my public sector work, to bring people together to create practical solutions that are consistent with our progressive values. Right, give me two examples. Two examples of what I've done? Okay. No, as progressive problems, though. You take a progressive value, yes. but the nuts and bolts of doing government, when the speeches are gone, you're in a room, you got to make it happen. Uh, you got it. Um, when I was mayor of West Hartford for four years, Republicans had controlled before, no fire contract. Not fair to our workers. We felt that was wrong. These were the people that were protecting us. We brought everybody to the table. We created a new contract that not only was fair to the workers, it saved the taxpayers money, and it was forward-looking, something that we have to do better. Tell me something how you do it, because everyone talks about that's what you want to do in a contract. What did the firefighters give up, and what did they get in return? They gave up uh, positions. We actually uh, right-sized the fire department, uh, and they got new duties because it was a 21st uh, century view of firefighting. So more like emergency EMT is an addition Hazmat, to the fire? EMT. So they agreed to do more. You gave, you gave maybe extra pay for that for fewer positions so that you didn't have to pay as many benefits? The, it, was, it was a benefit issue, but it was also, you know, um, we thought that we could, we could focus and do as good a job with fewer people, and to the extent they ever needed overtime, they could get that. But uh, overall, it saved a lot of money for the tax. In New Haven, a big issue on that is that we have minimum staffing in the union contract, so you have to have a certain number of people on duty. So that leads up means they have to often hire a lot more firefighters. Did you have the minimum staff? We had issue? we had something akin to that. Yeah, there had to be certain numbers of people on. Uh, but we did a bunch of things like risk assessments. We were moving towards a different strategy with firefighting using these new types of trucks called quints that were pumper, pumpers and ladder trucks. You can do that in a municipality with not a, lot of, not a lot of really tall buildings. So we were just trying to reinvent both mm -hmm. to be fair to workers, to save money, and also to bring our fire service, like we were doing across the town, schools and other front yard services, into the 21st century. When I was a kid, I used to read this book when I would, you know, baseball season would be coming. You'd open it up. The outfielder was always taught to run to where the ball's going to land. That's what you want to try to do as a good, progressive problem solver. It's to say, where's the world mo moving? What do people need? What do you need to protect them and be there to, uh, to catch that ball? The state government, unfortunately, has not done a very good job of it over the last few decades. We've kind of looked at where we are or even looked backwards and expected the ball to come to us. We need to have a new approach. Well, Ned Lamont was talking about, for instance, half, only half the retail sales in the state are at brick-and-mortar stores, but we only collect the sales tax. We collect the tax only on 
brick and mortar retail sales. He wants to tax e-commerce. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? We are the land of steady habits. We have to deconstruct and reconstruct everything that we do, both on the revenue side in a holistic way and on the expense side and say, what do we really want from our state government? And so, how are we going to get so it? So from Mike Handler on the Republican side to you and every other Democrat who's come in here, everybody says the same thing. We have to work with the unions, be fair to them, but also do something about the costs that are out of control, especially with pension benefits. In a specific way, what is something you believe you can do differently from the way Governor Malloy has negotiated with unions that would help us with our long-term fiscal picture but that unions wouldn't be protesting you because you are running as the progressive Democrat and you want their support. You have to, one, be willing to sit down with people. I think that the governor, when it came to the unions, has negotiated. Uh, a weakness that I believe he's had, though, is he did not come into the job with a, a, enough of an understanding um, or really drive to work directly with the legislature. Well, Jonathan, he was the mayor. So you think it's about his legis state legislative contacts he needed for labor negotiation. I think that when you are able to bridge the gap between two co-equal branches of government and work with people and bring people together, it makes a difference. Now, credit to the governor. He did what I did in West Hartford, and he finally stepped up and said, we got to make our pension payments. That's the first step, and that's what we have to do. I did that in West Hartford. 12 years, we had no need because we were overfunded. We had a pension holiday. We stepped up and above the reject objections of the Republicans, we made those payments. And we said, we're going to save otherwise because we have to meet our obligations looking down the road. All right. So, But we also have to come up in a creative way with other ways to get additional monies into the pension funds to be able to bend down that curve. And so we need to take a look at the assets that the state has and figure out how we can monetize some of those assets. We have to be much more creative Monetizing assets, that can sometimes be a scary thought, like selling parking meters or giving people private toll roads. Is that what you're talking about when you say monetize assets? I think we have to look at all of the land and other assets that the state has and say, what do we need? What's valued appropriately? What's undervalued? Try to squeeze value out of it and move some of that value into the pension Does that mean privatizing parts of parks to pay for more no, pension? No, what do, what do you mean? Well, give I'll, me specific I'll, about I'll assets. Give you, I'll, I'll give you an example. We have... 360,000 or so um, acres of, of forest land, in, in that I've been told. Uh, we do? Yep. Wow. We have a lot of acres that, that the state owns. And my question is, do we actually have management of that forest land? Is there, is there, is there management? You know, it's not about clear-cutting, but to have proper forest management, you need to sometimes take down trees. Are we doing that? Can we use Yukon School of Forestry, other schools, to maybe help mark trees, take them down? Is there the ability to sell some of that lumber, to monetize that, what you're doing as a good environmental practice, boil that down into cash to help with the pension? There's just Is that significant money? It, if it's 10 to $20 million, that's more than not having it. So what I'm saying is you need to take a and look. Obviously, the first question the environmentalists are going to ask, are you, gonna, you said it's not clear-cutting. not clear-cutting. Is it better environment to be pruning the trees in the forest? That's a proper forestry practices say that some amount of cutting down of trees to allow others to grow to the uh, allow the environment to expand is correct. I'm not an expert on it. What I'm telling you is that we have to take a look. Such an interesting idea. So going through the lumber business to pay for pensions. That might be one of the things, but there could be other things with all the assets that the state has. And I don't think we have the time now uh, to sit back and wait for the ball to come to us. We have to look at everything and be creative 
on how we get our state moving forward, whether it's the pension debt, our budget issues, how we raise revenue, how we do economic development. Those are the pathways we have to take, and we need to start thinking outside the box. That's what I've been able to do with my broad base of experience and be that progressive problem solver, bringing people together to create practical solutions to the problems that we face in a way that's consistent with our progressive values. You've been consistently listening to Dateline New Haven at WNHH, your home for Community Radio 103.5 FM live stream at newhavenindependent.org. We're getting to chat today with Jonathan Harris, who's exploring, quote-unquote, term, legal term of art, a candidacy for Democratic nomination for governor. I, I cut you off when you were talking to Jonathan about being a progressive problem solver. Another example, either as a mayor of West Hartford or as a state senator or as the um, consumer protection chief of the state, What's another example of a practical solution in a progressive context? When I was in the state Senate, there are a couple of examples, many of them, uh, but uh, we found out that the Catholic hospitals were not providing the Plan B emergency contraceptive to uh, women, to girls that were victims of sexual assault, brutalized. As a matter of fact, the basic plan was that, you know, they would have to leave the Catholic hospital, essentially go out to the street corner get a cab to another hospital. That mm-hmm. was unacceptable. It was not consistent with our values, the way we treat women, girls, especially brutalized by sexual assault. We brought everybody to the table. We brought the church to the table, and we figured out a third-party solution that not only provided access to the victims of that horrific crime, but also, so they had the emergency contraceptive, but it also was forward-looking to try to see so how So how did could, the church deal with that? What did they agree to? They agreed to allow a third party to administer in the hospital. In the hospital, so they were allowed. They were okay with contraception, Plan B contraception, basically for abortion, right? Be, taking place in their hospital if it was as done, long as it wasn't in the hand. Yep. I, I don't see how they rationalize that religiously. We got them to agree. The bill mm-hmm. passed overwhelmingly, thirty to three or thirty-three to three. In the so Senate. now this is happening. Catholic hospitals in the state now. Yep. All right. So that's something you can point to. Right. And Maybe, the, the other piece, uh, you know, practical problem solving. Healthcare, access to healthcare, dealing with the opioid epidemic, I oversaw the dramatic development and growth of a highly successful program, the medical marijuana program. When I started as Commissioner of Consumer Protection, there were you know, something north of 1,400 patients when I left last April uh, to go back to the private sector. Uh, there were about over 17,000. As we sit here today, there are over 23,000 patients, and this is about People suffering from cancer. Is there people? Is it really most people suffering cancer? Most people want to get high and they get a note from their doctor. Actually, a lot of the medicine doesn't get you high. There are eighty-four chemicals in the plant, and only one THC is a psychoactive. Kids that were seizing sometimes, you know, dozens of times a day with epilepsy, now take uh, a a low THC, higher CBD product to stop those seizures. You have a hospice there. You would have more uh, of the THC because that's a painkiller. And God forbid, you know, sort of they're getting a little bit of a buzz when they're about to die, right? It, it's it's comforting. It it enhances appetite. Uh, it also prevents nausea. So how did you do that, Jonathan? So you were consumer protection uh, director, and you said, I'm going to take some actions, get more people signed up. Was there actually a problem that patients who could use this weren't signing up? The problem actually was the challenge, I should say, was that how do you make this program work when you are in the midst of a budget crisis, and over Mm. time we had a 25% cut or so, 50 fewer people working in consumer protection. How do you get it done? We had a medical marijuana fund that actually was the money that people paid in registrations and and fees would go into this fund. We had a plan for that to actually build the program. That was taken and put into the general fund. We had to bring people together. We had to reorganize. We had to use process improvement. We had to use technology. 
I even went in on weekends, which I was there a lot anyway, I will tell you. But I went in, I was making at times the medical cards. We, whatever it took to get it done, to get these very sick people. Again, so better, what about now with opioid crisis? Uh, Ned Lamont brought that up yesterday. All right, first of all, you for legalizing recreational use of marijuana? I think that we should do it not like a lot of people are saying, just be looking at the revenue. I think we should do it because it's good public policy. Let's face it. It's in Massachusetts. It's going to be in Rhode Island, New York. It's everywhere. We can't stick our heads in the sand. We have to, like we did with the medical marijuana program, think of a thoughtful and a deliberate way to regulate it. We have to make sure there's access, but there's protections. We have to take into account the cost of regulation. We have to take into account social costs that are going to be there. And then when you're going to have revenue at the end, be realistic about what it is. Don't overblow it. And then that could be used uh, to help educate our kids, to help provide health care, to help put something back, perhaps, to help fight the opioid epidemic. Yeah, I was going to ask about opioids. I was going to say Ned Lamont. I said, well, he was for legalization, as am I. But I said, you know, in Colorado, most people, including Republicans who originally did not approve of marijuana legalization, now are for it. But the, the cops are not because they say there are more car accidents. And Lamont said, but there are actually a lot fewer people dying of opioids. Is that true? The... Is that when people would otherwise be taking opioids or they getting high instead with marijuana and that's the, fine? The medical program has shown this. There was a study done uh, nationwide a few years back that showed a decrease in the prescribing of opioids and other dangerous painkillers. We saw that anecdotally in the state. We started the first ever research program in the state because, again, we want to do this based on fact, based on, on, on a thoughtful, deliberate approach. We started this research program, and the first research project by St. Francis Hospital was to test the use of the medicine to treat severe rib, rib injuries, the, uh, the, um, the pain, which had been done by heavy doses of opioids. So we see that that's happening, uh, that the curve is bending down here. That's one, one approach. What about, what else with opioids? This is a tough one. How would you tackle the opioid crisis? Uh, I use the word crisis. I actually worked on that too. Uh, at Consumer Protection, we were head of drug control. That's why we had the medical marijuana program. Uh, we um, improved vastly and expanded the use of the prescription drug monitoring program, the software platform that monitors prescribing to prevent diversion, doctor shopping, some of the things that were you know, flooding our houses, our streets with opioids and, and becoming the, the beginning of Last week in here we had two researchers from Yosko Public Health leaders in the research and they said that government did a good job of that and that's actually not the issue now. The they issue, think the issue is getting more methadone. They say detox doesn't work, only 10% of Ten, only 10% of people go into detox actually end up kicking it, but 65% who have long-term methadone treatment do. They actually just need to sleep more. They think that's the next challenge, that under two, under 1% now of people who die from opioid o overdoses have this problem that we used to have of the overprescription people shouldn't get. Is that true? Well, I do believe that the overprescribing is a part of the problem that we, we, we're doing. We're but that's doing been it. tackled. That's Well, it's, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a work in process. We've made it much better. We improved that. Without a doubt, uh, and now we're starting to network more with more with other states to make sure that we have a seamless web. That we're we're doing it with the the veterans hospitals to make sure that someone can't go to the VA in West Haven, uh, get an opioid, and then not show up the next day at a doc in New Haven and get another prescription. So we're doing better on that. We uh, also certified pharmacists and trained them to prescribe naloxone, Narcan, mm -hmm. the uh, opioid antagonist that can save lives but we did it holistically again a, a, a more thoughtful approach so that the pharmacist was also trained in best practices for people to when they talk to them on what you should do 
when there's an overdose, and more importantly, networking with local prevention and recovery uh, places so that at that point when a caregiver comes in, you have a higher percentage chance for them to help get their loved one into treatment. But the big thing that we have to tackle is we don't have enough beds. So if somebody overdoses, they get the life-saving drug, naloxone, we don't have enough beds to put them in. Then when we do have enough beds so to put them in. So the times, one guy four times in one day, one family just kept bringing them back in for more Narcan. Yeah, and, and when, when we do have the beds, oftentimes our treatment plans are only for 30 days, maybe 60 days. Some people need, as you say, alternative treatments, longer times in, in treatment. So how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to get more beds? You need to free up dollars. You need to focus on... And where do you find the dollars And we have persistent deficits that go as high as $2.5 billion in one year? You need to take a look at all the things that the state does and eliminate things that don't go to the core services, whether it's health care, this type of drug addiction and, and treatment that's needed, education. What oh, are the so essential before, things? Before I get you down that road, which is an important road, Jonathan Harris, what uh, is that a main focus of yours about the next steps if you're elected governor and dealing with the opioid crisis more beds and longer stays other other thoughts any other arrows in the quiver we helped uh, put together a comprehensive plan with some of the other agencies that sort of spells out all the different strategies treatment beds longer treatment periods are part of what is needed in the state of connecticut Yes, that would be part of the solution. All right, let me just remind people, you are listening to Dateline New Haven on WNHH. Jonathan Harris, exploratory candidate for governor. We're talking about being a progressive problem solver, what that means on the ground. So now you talked about freeing up money in the budget, looking at our core services. That sounds like a general statement no one could disagree with. Name me something we don't need to be doing in the budget that we're paying for now that can free up the dollars and some constituent group isn't going to be happy about. I'll name you something that we did get rid of, small, but it definitely took, uh, you know, several state workers to do it was the regulation of bingos, bazaars, raffles, charitable games. We do not do that anymore on the state level as of January one. If you go around and we're, we're in our agency, we're one half of 1% of the state. Our agency uh, meaning consumer protection. Consumer protection. Yeah. We were one half of 1% of, uh, of the state employee workforce. And we went around and through eliminating things such as that, uh, helping to eliminate certain licenses that were not protecting people, but we call them money grabs, but saved us on personnel that we could either through retirements have the savings that we're needed to achieve without laying off because we did not lay off. But we lost licensing fees, right? Uh, you lost licensing fees, yes. Right, so, so you talked about what you've done on that. Looking forward, are there any significant parts of the state budget you could see just having us not pay for any more services we don't need to do? I think you're saying you, you got a record where you know how to do it. Right. What are some examples looking forward? Something that a voter might not be happy about? I think you need to look. Throughout the state budget, I'll give another example. Background checks, very important to do in a lot of contexts, right? Well, we have 10 people or so, I think, at DMV doing background checks for taxis. We only get paid 12 bucks a piece. Then they go to the state police, their state police time, and they do a, a state and criminal. You said state, for taxis? Taxis, a state and federal background check, right? So they mm -hmm. do that. Uh, now, do you have to get those for Uber? Uber actually uses the internet, which arguably, with the layering information, you can get a much more accurate snapshot of somebody's, you know, pot potential. So they don't have the person come in. They just look them up. They just do the research and their services that can do this. If you are able to, you know, set standards and then audit companies to, that, that need the background checks and some of the background checks should be done in state. There are certain levels of protection that you need to have the state involved, but for taxis, perhaps it could be done through a private service. Then of those 10 people, Maybe some 
through retirement, you have some savings, but the others can be reassigned to service delivery, like some of the things we're talking about, that actually protects people, that helps people, that makes a difference in somebody's lives. If you go around the state, and I did this when I was mayor of West Hartford, if you go around and you take a look at how we deliver services, there are a lot of pieces that collectively across the state budget will provide some real savings. It will not balance the budget. I know, but strength. some examples. Give me some real on the ground. You gave me some licensing. You think we do we do the licensing bid. And well, I gave, you the, I gave you also the background check piece and, and a, maybe a more effective way, cost-effective way, and way that provides much more protection uh, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Um, there are other ways that say that we regulate our, our liquor that are based upon a model that was created back in the 1930s after prohibition ended. There are some things that we could relax there and what not would be an example. What was something we could relax there? Um, we could uh, not require as much information uh, when a liquor application comes in, which takes time and because, because there's more on the web. There's, there, you could, we, we do things electronically now too. We uh, put our initial applications uh, online for licensing well, Steve, sitting and that, that saved 60 grand a year just mm. in postage costs, in a, in a, you know, quickly. And it also helped free up personnel to do higher level enforcement, auditing, and other services that are important to protect people. Steve Sitnik says something similarly. He's a Republican uh, looking at a governor run. When he was in here, he said, well, you know, why are we paying for Labor Department people to go check up on referees on, on Little League on the weekend? And I was thinking, A, is that really going to save us any money significantly? And B, don't we get revenue from people having to have licenses? Like a lot of these fixes... Assuming they'd give us better government, are they really going to save us serious money? You get revenue, but the revenue doesn't pay for the cost. And it's not direct. So the revenue well, doesn't think, pay for enforcement. I'm thinking of $12 per background check for a taxi license, right? Which, by the way, takes over 45, sometimes up to 60 days to get someone a credential that needs to work. Private sector, they foot the bill. We have the standards. We make sure it's safe. Government has a role in it. They pay for it. And... It takes three to seven days for a turnaround mm. for someone to get back to work. We were able to reduce times to get licenses out that makes a, a big difference in someone being able to go out and work because we were able to focus on that activity and not be distracted by other things that don't protect consumers, businesses. Are we going to have taxi drivers? I mean, is Uber regulated that way? That's still up in the air, right? How are we going to regulate started, Uber? They started, they'd made some changes to actually regulate Uber and Lyft more. And there should be some regulation, without a doubt. But the question is not make them all like taxis. They're different models. What's the appropriate level in the current situation for taxis? And there's stuff that was done a long time ago that should be relaxed because it wasn't protecting people. And Uber and Lyft, Transportation Network, should have some regulation to protect people. Where's the balance? Let's, let's, let's use common sense, practical problem solving. And balance, common sense, practical We talked a little bit before we went on the air, Jonathan Harris, about economic development and how you balance the um, the money you give up when you lure a big employer or a small employer to your community versus the extra um, the extra cost you assume to support new development in town mm-hmm. and the revenue you lose. And you've done work. You said in the, in the private sector as an economic development consultant, you've made laws about it. You run a town. How did you feel when Amazon didn't pick Connecticut? Would that have been a good thing to have them come here? I wasn't surprised uh, because of the state of our infrastructure, our transportation system, uh, the fact that uh, we have unpredictability in the budget and there's you know constant 
We're in the state of constant crisis uh, and a lot of other factors. Um, would it have been good to get another large employer? Yes, if you do, as you say, balance off the costs that we'll have on infrastructure, on our school systems. You always have to take that into account. But that's why I'm not calling for more top-down economic development. I'm calling for more bottom-up organic economic development, taking the focus off the top 1% and putting it on the entrepreneurs, the small businesses, the medium-sized businesses that, that create that, a lot that, of jobs. And the, con- and the conventional thinking is that requires creating an infrastructure, quote-unquote, meaning you have a workforce that could do the job. You got other companies where those ideas get shared. You have decent schools and fun stuff to do so that if you're the CEO of um, Aetna, you're not saying, I want to move to New York so I can have some fun. And if you're the CEO of GE, you're not saying, I want to go to Boston because there are a lot of smart people doing tech all within a qu- three blocks, and we're going to share a lot of those ideas and hire those people. How do you make that happen? You make that happen by creating vibrant neighborhoods, by attracting private sector money to create the businesses, the jobs that are needed. So I'll give you so the, the question. West- so how do you do that? How do you do that? I'll give you a West Hartford example. West Hartford has become uh, a focal point, regional entertainment, housing, uh, businesses in the, in the Hartford area. The two most important things that, that started that off were allowing outdoor dining and changing parking ratios for restaurants. It allowed government stepping back on something to allow that happened pro- here. We started reserving some parking spaces in New Haven. When you put up, up people do like to eat outside. Yeah. What happened to parking ratios? Less parking or more parking? You didn't. You didn't have to have as much parking. Now some people get up really upset about that. But they, what's the big picture? They still keep coming. I'll tell you that. You know, people might. Uh, so that's a density complain. issue, right? That you think that we geared a lot of development for the second half of the 20th century around the car after World War II, and that a lot of people feel that was a mistake. Right, and it's going to be changing, as we know, with Uber, Lyft, driverless cars. We have to again look out where the world's going because there was talk about maybe building another parking garage in West Hartford. But yeah, maybe it made sense today, but will it make sense five years, 10 years? When so you zoning, that you're money? saying don't, de- don't have development strategy that centers around the car as much. You want to make what you need is whatever can attract that, those private dollars in a thoughtful way, whatever can create the vibrant neighborhoods. When we got the center humming, when it was, when it was on the cutting edge, we had two boarded up polluted car dealerships, 1950s model, we looked out and we said, we need to do something about this. So we started ahead of time to, to, to attract people that would have a master-planned vision, not one-off development, but something that was now good for the town. how do you attract them? That's one question. So you talked about organic development. One issue when people reassessed urban de- and economic development from the latter part of the 20th century, they felt that government was trying to, quote, pick winners. That's a loaded question. Not a lot, a and we didn't phrase. do that. I think that's why you move away from that top-down picking winners. But you're saying losers. you said we wanted to find a certain kind of business to come in. That's not the same thing as setting the table with good schools, good zoning rules, so you don't have to ha- overdo the parking. You're still not saying which industries are going to thrive. I'll tell you what we, uh, I'll tell you what we did, uh, because it's exactly what we did. We had this area that was underutilized, polluted, and we said, what can we do to attract development? We set up a grid system. We made sure that a road went over a brook and attached to another road. We changed our zoning prospectively to allow more density, more height, so you could have better cash flows. We said that we'd be willing, because as part of our refocusing of our government, we were consolidating services between the school and the town side. Because we had great schools and want to preserve them, that was an attraction to West Hartford, which we preserved on the budget side. That was a reason for people to come. Then we had to set the table. So when had, was he talking 90s? This was uh, early 2000s. 
I, I became mayor in 2001, was reelected in 2003. Uh, we were working on the center in all areas of the town. And what's to, the center called? Uh, West Hartford Center. Blueback Square is this master planned, larger development that came. We now have a hotel there. There's a Whole Foods. Uh, it, it, it really it doubled the size of our center, brought in a lot more jobs uh, and a lot more... Um, so the blue black square model of organic bottom-up development setting the table through infrastructure, how would that translate if you're governor to economic development in the state, and how would that compare to, let's say, the first five strategy where we brought Alexi on here with a lot of breaks and they left within six months? It would be reversing sorry, that. Yeah, 13 months. It would be reversing that strategy. I don't think you'd ever get rid of uh, some of that giving money and tax breaks to attack to uh to uh, attract business i think what we need to do a better job at holding the businesses accountable being able to claw back money so you would uh, still sure, say to ubs if they're saying we might leave you might not you're still going to throw them a lot of money i didn't say that at ubs i'd say that you would have that as part of your strategy but it would not be your lead strategy so you wouldn't reverse the first five strategies you would modify i would and i would put it lower on the priority list of our strategies i would do what we needed to do to build the infrastructure that would attract yeah. people. Make sure that our schools were strong. Set the table with zoning and with use of municipal assets to be able to build the vibrant downtowns and cities and, and elsewhere that we need to not just have a tax base and have a healthy economy that keeps churning, but that also builds the places where young people want to live, the workforce of today and tomorrow so that we have people here like Spencer. My son was sitting here. He just yeah, I noticed he's in Connecticut. I thought that the common talk is that that generation, look, my kids are Spencer's age. They're not in Connecticut. You're in Connecticut just for your dad's campaign? or, or Oh, you're a he, he Are you going to keep him here? Or what's the deal? He wants to stay here, but unfortunately, a lot of his opportunities are in Boston and New York. Yeah. So that's a challenge that we have. That's why we need to. I lost the one to Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting yeah, place. Yeah. It is, actually. It is. Yeah. I haven't been there in a long time, though. It's changed a lot. It, since is, I was there. it is night and day. Yeah. So um, we have to create those vibrant neighborhoods, whether it's within existing cities and, and, and spread out the downtown areas to affect the neighborhood where I lived in the North End and make sure that there's opportunity and good schools for people there, or take a look at other areas that are underutilized now. The Naugatuck Valley, all the old factory buildings right on Metro North that we could use this bottom-up economic development to attract private sector money to redevelop those. How would you do that in the Valley? Because you, you don't have the population density. You look at zoning that can tear down barriers. You know, you still have to regulate. You still have to be safe and protect. But there are barriers that don't go to those important goals. Now, this is getting would, really in the weeds. I've been wondering the last week or two how the changes in the federal tax code are going to hamper those kind of efforts because now a lot of it was built on tax credits, correct? Like low-income tax credits, you're going to build in New Haven. And now those aren't as valuable as they used to be, given the, the huge cuts in corporate tax rates. Is that going to affect your ability to do this kind of organic follow-up? Well, I'm, I'm, we didn't do tax credits, tax breaks in, in West Hartford. We figured out other creative ways, some of which I mentioned, to attract the, the private sector money. So it is not all about that. But we do have to take a look through at the new tax law and see across the board how it's affecting Connecticut and take that into account because one of the other pieces that we have to deal with is our revenue base. We have just sort of added incrementally taxes uh, and we're always looking at how much revenue it throws off, which of course is important, but we also here need to take a holistic view. What taxes are more progressive and less regressive? 
what taxes and what revenue structures attract And what would be people. an example of that? There are a lot of people who are like Jonathan Harris and other states who have begun talking about payroll taxes, for instance, and not as heavy reliance on the income tax. It was an interesting way of coming 180 because if you remember in 90 when we did the income tax, we believed that was going to be a stable revenue source, and it was for a long time. But it's not based and, upon and, the way people make money nowadays. Yeah, yeah. You got, and this is not a Connecticut problem, by the way. The Pew right. Charitable Trust had a, a study several years ago that the income taxes need to be changed to reflect and to, to, to be able to get at the way people make money now. So you need to do that, and you have to take a look again at what are the revenue sources that are incentives for people, family, businesses to come and stay here. And we have to have the appropriate mix. of So we have to really, like all these things, sort of deconstruct and reconstruct the way we do things. Thinking mm-hmm. outside the box, being progressive problem solvers like I've been, in the public sector and private sector throughout my career. All right, and you're listening to Jonathan Harris, who is running an exploratory campaign for governor of the state of Connecticut here on WNHH-FM's Dateline, New Haven, 103.5 FM, and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Lightning round, Jonathan Harris. Public financing, would you keep the public financing system or would you run within it? I've, uh, I voted for it. I ran on it in 2008, my last run for Senate. I'm uh, running on it now as I explore for... Uh, governor, uh, and um, I think we might need to make some changes to it, but it should stay. What kind of changes? Uh, you have to take a look at conditions on the ground and uh, how some of the rules affect the way campaigns are run. Um, you know, there's there are um, things that you want to achieve, uh, but sometimes the headquarters doesn't work uh, in the reality the way that the law might or the regulation or the perspective of the regulator uh, might want to have it. So we just have to take a look at that. have to take a look also at, um, you know, ways to make sure that people participating in the system are able to build campaigns because that's very important to be able to be out there. Like I have been crisscrossing the state, listening to people, talking with people and make sure that the, the financing system enables that to happen. So I think there's things that we could look at, but I'm all in favor of public financing. Single payer health insurance. Hey, I, uh, you know, I was, uh, Part of uh, a, a um, effort to have Medicare for all in the state. It didn't work back when I was the uh, human services chair. Uh, I think we need Medicare for all on the national level. I was the public health chair in the Senate when we did the sustenance plan, which is our version of Romney Care, what the Affordable Care Act actually became. I think it's imperative now. I love that you mentioned that. People always forget when they talk about Obamacare, it started out as Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts. It, it, his, his official poster actually had the... Uh, not post a picture as governor actually had the bill next to him. And then he ran against it for president. We took Jonathan Gruber, those ideas brought him here. We figured out sustenance. Now that the affordable care act is gone, that Jonathan Gruber also helped on. We had a similar model here. We have to basically take a look at that law, which I believe is still in existence and say, okay, with the way things have changed, funding streams, the way the medical uh, practice, the field has changed. How do we make that law work to provide more coverage, reduce cost, because everybody, it's a right, deserves affordable and quality for, health Former state senator and uh, aging commissioner Edith Prague announced their endorsement of you today, of your campaign. Her name might not mean a lot down here, but I know up in the Capitol. She's very well known, an instant character. She endorsed your campaign, and she talked about your work on the public access option as one reason she was supporting you along with the transportation network you set up yeah, that's for actually seniors. A progressive thing. So we, in long-term care, our move was to try to enable people to live independently for as long as, as they could, not get right to a nursing home, uh, to use the c- continuum of care, we called it. But we realized Who's that... Who's we? Uh, 
the legislature. Which Senator I'll be Craig, talking about now when you were state in the Senate. Senate. In the state mm-hmm. Senate. Uh, we realized that it was one thing to have a person at their home, but if they can't drive and get around, it didn't make a difference. So we figured out a program. It started in Maine. We brought it to Connecticut called the Independent Transportation Network, which is a private sector-based program. But we used, a, we tore down the barriers, certain insurance barriers, other things that were in state law to allow this independent network that runs on uh, donations, both corporate and private, on volunteers, on a sophisticated software is system. Is it private, not-for-profit, or private for Private, not-for-profit. Non- and that's taking, uh, in some of our communities, the elderly, people with certain disabilities around the communities, not a permanent line item in the state budget. That is an example, again, of progress- progressive problem-solving, mm-hmm. of getting service delivery in a way that makes sense. So there's no state money in it? It was just about changing state rules? It was about t- uh, changing state rules and uh, helping them to organize on the ground and using our bully pulpit to help get it started. Mm-hmm. Which you, if you become governor, you do get a bully pulpit. You do. Would you use that bully pulpit to support sanctuary cities policies the way Governor Malloy has? I am for safe cities, welcoming cities, cities where law enforcement uh, focuses on protecting people so that Jeff live there. Jeff Sessions says, hey, we forgot to give you the subpoena last week the first time around. You're getting one, Governor Harris. You're going to say too bad off a seat in court. You're going to say, sorry, we'll give you info on people we, we're detaining so you can lock them up. I'm not going to uh, follow what Jeff Session does. Okay. The uh, tolls, highway tolls. Uh, I think electronic tolls have to be on the table as part of the solution. Wait, on the table is candidate way of saying I'm not going to give you a firm position either way. No, no, because you, you again, I'm a holistic guy. I'm a problem solver. You're saying do it right, but would you do it? I, I, would, I would put it on the table, and in a mix of revenue, as we deconstruct and reconstruct our revenue, it would be a part of the discussion it would have to be money directed towards infrastructure so that would be something that would be important to me i think we should also look at some of the other taxes now we have the gas tax that was going to the special transportation fund. governor malloy yesterday said he wants to raise it seven cents a gallon maybe we can lower it maybe we can lower it and actually have people stop and buy gas when they're zooming through the state maybe more people buying do a lot of people not buy in connecticut because because it's higher we've heard that through companies, trucking companies. We've heard that just anecdotally. They're talking to friends and Is family Is that holistic members. environmentally? You want more people buying gas? You want the people that are coming here, driving their cars, to be able to buy it here if they're using their cars. Getting cars off the road having more public transportation and infrastructure is another strategy, but that's not related to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would take a look at lowering the gas tax, see what the effect might have on being able to not just st- people stop for gas, but when they stop, they might go in and buy a burrito in the convenience store. So there are, there are, we have to look at everything in a holistic way. So yes, electronic tolls would most likely be part of that solution, but you got to puzzle through the problem. Would you raise the marginal rates uh, income tax for people earning either half on the income either over a half million or a million year from six point nine nine to seven point five percent? I voted um, for progressive taxation. Uh, I know people should pay their fair share. I voted twice to raise the income tax. Last two times it didn't work. I think we need to take a more thoughtful view at how the tax is structured. That debate has been interesting because you get someone like Martin Looney, a liberal Democrat from New Haven, he's agreeing with the Republicans that. If you raise taxes anymore on the wealthy, they will leave the state and you'll get less revenue overall. You have other liberal Democrats who think the opposite, so it's never been proved. That's an excuse people leave when they're going to Florida anyways, and that it that if you're earning over a million dollars a year, you can pay 7.5%. It's not different from the rates you're paying in Massachusetts people, or New York. Where are you on that one? People are, are leaving, yes. I don't think the sky is falling. People are leaving. I, I know it. I, I 
I know it from professionals, from people that I talk to, family members, and others. But it's not this mass exodus like people. And are they leaving say. because you're they're not- leaving for a whole host of reasons? So you need to again look holistically. Back to the development. If uh, Spencer is able to stay here and he has a vibrant city, a vibrant neighborhood to live in, his grandkids, my grandkids, not not yet, son, but at some point, will probably be here. That's another reason for me to stay here. Are you going to make uh, him pay that seven point five percent over his million dollars a year? But, but. The problem with the income tax, the way it's structured to me, is the volatility. The top 1% have 30% of the burden. Yeah. A lot of that is financial industry. So then when Wall Street gets the cold, we get the fever. That Set aside from whether people coming, there's a whole host of reasons, taxes. That's one of the things that we have to do when we're deconstructing and reconstructing our revenue pie is take a look at what are the incentives for people, families, and businesses to come and stay. But wait, would you stop relying for 30% of the income from the from Wall Street for the top 1%? I would take a look at how people are making money now and make sure that everybody pays their fair share in a broad-based progressive That tax. might mean requiring more than 30% to come from them because, for instance, the carried interest loophole, if we're going to try to make up that gap from the federal um, loophole, that would actually increase how much we're relying on Wall Street. That would be one that would increase it. There could be other things that would that would spread out the burden in a much more uh, stable way because you need revenue without a doubt. And that's why I'm for progressive taxation. Everybody should pay their fair share. But you also need stability in revenue. So whether you're a person, a family, or a small business, you can make plans and, and, and know how you're going to be taxed for five or 10 years. We don't have that stability now. So it's not just as simple a discussion as adding points on an income tax. Progressive taxation is good. How you do it, the details matter. Erin Stewart, what do you think about her entering the race on the other side? A 30-year-old woman who's a Republican in a Democratic city and is the only one who's smart enough to announce her candidacy on Facebook Live and how people actually communicate now. Does she scare you? People have entered the race. People have left the race. <laughs> I have to focus on what I need to do every day. I've been crisscrossing the state literally every day. Weekends, working on campaigns, talking to people, listening to people. That's what it's about. That's what I focus on. People come and go. I can't, I can't be Keeping your eye that. on the prize. Exactly. When do you decide whether you stop exploring and start running? Well, the convention is around the corner. So around the corner. The- it's four months away. Not really, like a little over three, three and a half months away. I mean, that's around, I've been doing this for nine and a half months. That's around the corner to me. So, you know, within the next couple of months, uh, we'll make a a decision. And um, any last thoughts on why you like being in public service and why you'd want a job running a government that's largely dysfunctional, partisan gridlock, and every three months we have a new budget deficit that means making painful cuts? I love this state. It's a great state we got to get out of the negativity and look at the assets we have and leverage them. We can bring people together like I've done as a practical problem solver, a progressive problem solver, to get these things done. I am convinced of that. I want this state to be great. And by the way, you know, we talked about the upbringing with, with activism on the street to protect people, educate people, get people health care. The concept in, in the Jewish religion of tikkun olam, repair of the world, that is part of my core value. We need to leave the world a better place, and we can do this. All right. Well, thank you for leaving WNHH a better place today on Dateline New Haven. Jonathan Harris, exploratory candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Look Likewise. forward to it again. Thanks. Special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. 
Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Radio. 